Not too many people nominated during the Obama administration are still around, but my next guest is. She recently marked seven years in a crucial but largely hidden job, Librarian of Congress. For a retrospective, we welcome Carla Hayden to the show. Dr. Hayden, good to have you with us. Well, thank you, and thank you for marking the anniversary of the seventh year of my 10-year term. I appreciate that. And you are only the 14th librarian of Congress in something that was established in 1802. So there's a good history of continuity in this job, isn't there? Very much so. And also, I'm the third person to be librarian of Congress that was actually a librarian. Uh, My two predecessors years ago were the heads of the Cleveland Public Library and the Boston Public Library. And I just recently was the head of the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore. That's also the State Library for Maryland. And we proudly would say the first uh, library system in the United States. Well, having been born in Cleveland and grew up around Boston, uh, so I know a lot of those places. I used to have lunch on the steps of the Boston Public Library. And let me ask you this. How do you approach or how have you been approaching this kind of dichotomy, if you will, in mission. There is a need for public access to the richness of the Library of Congress, and we won't spend too much time over how vast that is, people probably realize. But at the same time, it is also the Library of Congress, which has the ultimate rights to what's going on there. And how do you handle that sort of dual mission, if you will? The Library of Congress, of course, is the world's largest library. It has a collection of over 170 million items, It's the largest collection of human knowledge in the world. And it also is the nonpartisan research arm of Congress. That's how it started. It started with 600 law books that when you think about 1800, the first librarian came in 1802. It was a new nation. These were reference books to serve them. But now it is really the research arm for Congress and the people Congress serves. And so there's still a dedicated staff, the Congressional Research Service, and many people know about the reports that they make publicly available out of the research they do for Congress. And that's hundreds of specialists in every field, plus one of my favorite things, embedded librarians (laughs) and information specialists that work with PhDs and energy and just every topic. And then... The three physical buildings that are open to the general public, adjacent to the Capitol, and before the pandemic, two million people visited those buildings because there's a direct tunnel, a link from the Capitol Visitor Center. And so people from all over the world are able to look at the exhibits that are being able to now go through our digital front door. We've digitized 61 million items. And so that being able to still serve Congress and be that for them, but also the people Congress serves has been an exciting part of what we're doing and letting people know about all of the things they can access. And a side question on that idea of digitizing so many of the resources. I think one of the great innovations in that process was the use of citizen translators citizen leaders, people that could volunteer and take a document and read something that was 
faded ink on parchment or ink on paper or something and create the digital version. Is there still opportunity for that? Oh, there's quite a bit of opportunity. And the pandemic really allowed us to accelerate that effort. We started it uh, several years ago by the people. And there are so many documents that need to be transcribed so they're more accessible. You can imagine cursive writing. And we even had intergenerational projects, too, because you might have younger people who were very good with the computers but couldn't read cursive writing. And so we even had uh, that where we invited people to help us. And the first group of documents were letters to Abraham Lincoln that hadn't really been read in decades. And so now we're putting more things up and anyone can get online and, and start helping us transcribe all types, the diaries of Clara Barton, all of these types of things that are in sometimes a, a format that makes it hard for people now to read are available. So please, if you'd like to do it, we would appreciate it. It's kind of fun too. And the language that's used in the older times is kind of interesting too. It would be nice to maybe get some of these texters and Instagram and TikTok generation people to maybe digitize those documents and think of the English and the the uh, classical ability of self-expression that they might learn in so doing. It might be very helpful. And the interesting part was the lack of an ability to read cursive writing. It's like a foreign language to a younger generation. Crazy. We're speaking with Dr. Carla Hayden. She is the 14th Librarian of Congress. And speaking of COVID and the pandemic, how did that affect the library? And are you back to where it was prior? We are almost entirely back to the number of people who were able to just physically come in to the facilities, the Jefferson Building, the Adams Building, and the Madison Building right there. And what we were able to do because we had spent before the pandemic several years strengthening our information technology infrastructure. It was in a challenged space and there was a, even a GAO report about it that was made public that we needed to work on that. But all of that work paid off because when the pandemic hit and we had to switch to teleworking virtual programming, for instance, the National Book Festival was all virtual with 120 authors who were able to Zoom in. We were able to have authors that might not have been able to make it for that one day at the Washington Convention Center that we've been having it. So we had a actually a richer variety of programming. And so we've continued that aspect. So this year, the National Book Festival was back at the Washington Convention Center. However, we had the virtual component so we had people from all 50 states that were able to tune in and listen to and even interact with an author that's in Washington. So we learned a lot of lessons. We were already going down a digital path and has happened with many institutions and individuals. The pandemic pushed us down there a little more rapidly <laughs> and we saw it could work. Uh, Zoom became a verb. And it's really, though, has helped us do something that we said we wanted to do 
in our strategic planning connect to everyone. And so this really has opened it up for us. And I want to ask you a philosophic question maybe about the role of libraries. And this is in the context of what has happened in the country over the past several years, the latest example of which I heard just the other day on the radio, which is that certain stained glass windows in the National Cathedral have been replaced because the old ones showed Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. And, you know, maybe now we don't want to have statues to those people, but neither do we want to pretend they never existed. Do you think that, in fact, it would be harmful to our national memory and understanding of events if we erased that memory? So it seems like libraries are in a unique position to strike the balance between you can't change the past. In fact, the better we preserve it, the more we understand ourselves. And maybe the libraries are the best place for this kind of adjustment to occur. Libraries and museums have such an important role in providing context. And my colleague, Dr. Lonnie Bunch at the Smithsonian, talks about this quite a bit. And he's been on the show, too, an impressive man. Very impressive, because when you erase one part of history, you are also opening the door to erasing other parts and giving people a sense of how things came to be and giving that context can help with that understanding of where we are now and where we could go in the future. And libraries and museums are places that people look to for trusted information. I know we have in the library world, one of the greatest stereotypes that we're not in it for anything. Uh, we're, we're trusted. Um, and that's something that people can count on. In, in this time that there's quite a bit of, I think it's been termed misinformation or that libraries and museums can be that place that you know that people are vetting the information and trying to give you a sense of what you can count on. We continue now with our interview with Dr. Carla Hayden, the 14th Librarian of Congress. And I wanted to ask you, getting back to your term, you have three years left and you've made a lot of changes. Maybe summarize how you think the library has come in these seven years and what your plan is for the next three that you have, at least that we know of in your term, because it is subject to reappointment, but that's nothing we can really speculate on at this point. Well, I mentioned the uh, multi-year effort to strengthen the library's IT infrastructure and to be able to offer more collections and also programming and direct interactions with the general public and with Congress as we serve them. And so that will be expanding even more and strengthening the on-site experiences that people have in the three buildings, especially the Thomas Jefferson, really our front door. And so we'll have for the first time an orientation center for the general public to help them understand what the Library of Congress is, what it can do for them, like our Veterans History Oral History Project that they can participate in, a learning lab, this is close to my heart, for the young and the young at heart, where we'll have interactive experiences in programming, and we hope to inspire a new generation of researchers and filmmakers. Ken Burns uses our collections extensively. So there's an opportunity for more people to become creators and even historians. And then our exhibit spaces will be expanded. For the first time, we'll have 
in the Jefferson Building a treasures gallery. And we'll be able to rotate some of the many things that we have, like the contents of Abraham Lincoln's pockets the night he was assassinated. Been seen at the Ford Theater on loan there, but we'll be able to put things on display and just expand the awareness of what the Library of Congress is. With respect to those treasures, they're still coming in too, aren't they? Oh, yes. We just received the collection of the playwright Neil Simon. So the cultural arts are very extensive at the library, as well as the historic papers that are coming in, Secretary Madeleine Albright's papers. Here we have the papers, and we've been able to work with the Supreme Court on the papers of 38 Supreme Court justices, including Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And those two women were very involved in setting up the terms. So we work closely with the Supreme Court on what can be made available to the public, as well as the papers of 23 presidents. And that's where our relationship with NARA is very strong and has been even strengthened. I think your listeners will be pleased to know that there was a and it's even been put up as a tweet uh, from the new archivist of the United States, Dr. Colleen Shogan, hosted me as the librarian and also Dr. Lonnie Bunch from the Smithsonian to continue the partnership that we had with her predecessor, David Ferriol. We call ourselves the Gang of Three. Sure. <laughs> Well, I can tell you that uh, Ms. Shogun is going to be on the show shortly, too. We've got oh, that interview great. lined up. because we And she's wonderful. And so just making sure that those three institutions, for instance, uh, the Library of Congress had the founding documents until the 1950s. And then when NARA was established, they turned them over. And there's a very dramatic photograph. And it was, we found out later through correspondence that it was staged with the Librarian of Congress and the archivists at the time to have tankers come up to the steps of the Library of Congress to take the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, all those things that have been there. But when people sometimes get a little confused about what the difference is, the, of course, NARA is the official place for government documents and correspondence. And the Library of Congress might have the diaries of Teddy Roosevelt. So when you think about it now, that's the division. And so it makes it a, when we work on, and that's one of the things that we talked about last week, just in fact, the relationship with those three institutions can give a richer, let's say, exhibit experience. Sure. Smithsonian has the actual clothes that Benjamin Franklin wore. NARA has documents from his patents, all kinds of things. And then the Library of Congress might have his correspondence. And so we, we're going to be working on how can we, one of my favorites uh, was the um, Orville and Wilbur Wright archives at the Library of Congress. So we have that. NARA has all of their official documentation for their flight. And as Dr. Bunch reminded us they have the plane. <laughs> yes, indeed, they sure do. <laughs> so there's more we can do to just uh, make sure that our collections connect. But that's the dividing line there with NARA. 
We are speaking with Dr. Carla Hayden, the 14th Librarian of Congress, as she celebrates seven years of a 10-year term in office, and as someone who used to use card catalogs and had a rudimentary understanding of the Dewey Decimal System, gosh, librarian science has changed so vastly as to be almost unrecognizable from when I was growing up, anyhow. What are the human capital needs of something like the Library of Congress, and what does it take to be a librarian? What does that word really mean nowadays? Nowadays, the word librarian has expanded to be an information specialist when that's what librarians always were. And we even have t-shirts and mugs that say librarian, the original search engines, we would help you. And once technology gave us even more ability, so those card catalogs were now the online catalogs. So we have, instead of graduate library schools where you get a master's degree, in library science, it's now a master's degree in information science. And we're actually having some competition for our graduates with big tech firms. Because one of the things that you learn is search techniques and what and reference and answering the question and that. So you, you really have, and we're attracting a lot of younger people into the profession because that is a service that libraries give and it's not commercial and so they're able to give information access and help people find the information they need health information is the number one aspect of what libraries people go to libraries for still and do you think that librarians also need to have let's say a digital side and what i'll call for lack of a better word a sensual side by that i mean the love and appreciation of paper books and typography, of the parchment documents that you mentioned, and of, I mean, I remember how libraries used to smell. I mean, book glue. Has that was a, the glue. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was the glue. And what has happened is that there is now more of a specialty with people who are involved with the book arts, the book as artifact, the the documents as physical items. And so the digitizing of letters, for instance, but also the preservation of the physical. And so you now have preservationists and people who, and younger people who were interested in chemistry and art and all of that, that are working with the original items And that's a specialty there and people who care for rare books. And then you have the digital side that are just straight up. Here's what's being born digital, as they call it. So when information is coming in, it never touches anything physical. Sure, It's straight into the digital. So there are so many opportunities now. In the museum world, it's the same thing. You, You have this variety of ways to touch information or items. And two final quick questions. What's your favorite type of butterscotch? Anything that has a connection to chocolate. (laughs) All right. And I guess I I missed that mark one a little bit. And last question, what was in Lincoln's pockets? Oh, it's such an experience to see the two... He had two glasses. He had two pairs of glasses, spectacles, as it was called. He had a handkerchief that had his initials on it, and it was used. 
he also had a wallet with Confederate Bill. He had just been down to visit the South and had that. He had about six newspaper articles that were well-read and about the war and that were basically critical of his efforts. And then the part that really got me something like it's almost a, a button. And when you think about a button coming off of your jacket, and you would just put it in your pocket and that that might have been more immediate. That might have happened earlier that day. So it really brings him to life in a, in a poignant way. I guess that's what libraries do is bring life to us in a poignant way. Dr. Carla Hayden is the 14th Librarian of Congress. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Check out the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.